Welcome to Common Ground Church, Rwandabosh, a community based in Cape Town, South Africa, who believe that if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything. Our sermon podcast aims to unpack this reality, rooted in scripture and dependent on God's Spirit. Every now and again, we pause our series to hear from our pastors on what God is pressing on them in this current moment. Please continue listening for today's message. Tushinga, won't you guys both stand together? Come up here if you don't mind. Guys, these are good friends. They are originally from Zimbabwe, uh, have planted a church into Nairobi, Kenya, one tribe church. I've had the privilege of being in this church twice over the years. A fantastic church. community, fantastic missional church into a key African city. And these guys are are great friends. What you might not know about them is they got some kids. They also straddle the line between ministry and marketplace realities. Imbonisi is a, a doctor and a surgeon and is highly qualified. And he spends a few days of his week doing that and the rest of his week leading a phenomenal church in the city. And so these guys are great churches. I'm gonna ask you, Tash, if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit more about your guys' context, family, and how we can pray for the church. Okay, cool. Yeah, so we are based in Nairobi. Bonisi and I and our family, our three kids, moved there at the end of 2015. And we have just loved living in Nairobi and being part of One Tribe Church. And a big thing that's coming up for our church is as we get back um, on Sunday next week, we move from one morning meeting at 10 a.m. to two morning meetings, one at 9 and one at 11. And so you can be praying into that. Um, Our kids, we're so looking forward to being back with them soon. We've got Ethan, who's 16, Noah, who's 14, and Bethel, who is 12. And we are just going to spend a few more days in the Western Cape celebrating our 20th anniversary (laughs) before we head back home. So, yeah, um, thank you for having us. And we loved our time with the Future Shapers. It was absolutely amazing as well. So, yeah. It's great. Now, Tash, you can actually take a seat. I'm going to pray for Imbo as he, he comes to preach to us. Now, many of you guys uh, know that we had a Future Shapers. That's kind of some leaders from all the advanced churches here in the Western Cape. They were away for the weekends. And Imbonisi was the keynote speaker. And when I heard that he was on camp over the weekend, but not flying straight out, which often has to be the tendency when you work two jobs, right? I was like, please, won't you come and speak to us in our evening meeting? And he graciously said, yes. So off the back of a very full weekend, I'm super keen to hear what he's got to say. But I was eager to do so because Imbonisi is one of those brothers and preachers who when he kind of gets fired up about something, I feel like steel gets placed in my bones, right? He gets my heart singing in the purposes and the goodness of God and courageous to step into the more that God so often has for us. So Imbonisi, great to have you with us tonight. Go for it, brother. Father, thank you for this brother and friend. Thank you for our great partnership in the gospel over many years. Thank you for hotel rooms and different places in the world that we've had the privilege of sharing. And thank you for the opportunity to serve each other's churches. And so we open our hearts wide this evening to what you would want to say through Imbonisi. Won't you use him as your very oracle and mouthpiece tonight in your glory, your gloriously good name. Amen. Amen. 
Amen. Your glorified name. Yeah. Go for it, Eva. Is this thing on? Yes. Okay. It's uh, so good to be here. And um, I mean, what an absolute joy. I walked in during the second worship song, um, the one with the African feel. And uh, I, I walked in and said that they're doing a great job with this to Tash. And Tash said to me, yes, and they uh, the guys on stage are doing it Johnny Clegg style. And I thought that's, uh, I can't think of a higher compliment. Uh, it's really good to be here. And uh, let me preface, let me preface um, what I'm about to preach into by saying that what happens here at Common Ground in Rondebosch really matters. And when you hear about a church in Lange that has a new building, <laughs> in large part because of the generosity of people in this church. Folks, that, that matters. And uh, when you send people to Madagascar, it's not apostolic tourism. You've sent many people, you've sent Ryan, you've sent Rigby to One Tribe Church in Nairobi. And when they come, they strengthen us, they encourage us. When we get a new staff member on staff, one of the first things I do is say, call your opposite number in common ground. Here's Louisa's email or whoever it may be, and uh, just they'll show you how to do this Sunday operations or life groups or kids or whatever it may be. And out of your life, life is springing up in Langa, in Antananarivo, in Nairobi. And so I just want to encourage you that when you're up here on stage, when you're greeting at the door, man, it matters. And so it's a joy to be here tonight speaking to a church that matters so much to us about something that really, really matters. And that's found in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In Luke chapter 18, verse 10, Jesus says this, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up, I got, I, uh, he stood up and prayed about himself. How's that? <laughs> introduction. He's the guy who stands up and prays about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, all black supporters, and adulterers. I think I must be tired because I'm being very mischievous, I promise, to behave better. Or even, Lord, like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. <coughs> Jesus, we thank you for these magnificent stories that have been handed down to us. And it's my prayer that as we study this passage, 
that whatever it is that we need to understand, that whatever it is you want us to understand, that you would unpack with the help of your Holy Spirit, wherever we are on our spiritual journey, God, would you show us good news that makes our hearts sing, that causes us together as a community to celebrate in a deeper way, in a more real way, who you are and what you've done. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. I know what you're thinking. Depending on how long you've been in church, Pharisees, aren't those the guys who ended up being part of the party that killed Jesus? Those are the bad guys. Tax collectors, aren't those the people who Jesus was famous for hanging out with? Aren't those the good guys? And if that's the case, then there actually isn't much to see here. Bad guy prays a bad prayer and goes home with a bad result. Good guy prays a good prayer. He goes home with a good result. Not so quick. Let's take a step back. Context is king, they say in verse nine. The gospel writer tells us that to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. What's the problem? The problem is God is righteous and as human beings we all fall short of that righteousness. The question is how do you fill the gap? And there were some that the Bible says who trusted in their own righteousness to bridge the gap between our fallenness and God's perfection. And to quote the Bible scholar J.C. Ryle, we are all naturally self-righteous. It is the family disease of all the children of Adam. I find this tendency in myself, and according to J.C. Ryle, this tendency exists in all of us. We have a tendency to find our righteousness within ourselves. And it's because of that that Jesus told this story. He said two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The first thing I wanna talk about is the Pharisee. I wanna introduce you to the Pharisee, then I wanna introduce you to the tax collector. And then we wanna look at the most important word in this passage. And then we're gonna look very briefly at why the Pharisee went home not justified and why the tax collector went home justified. But let's first meet the Pharisee. And the one thing I want you to know about the Pharisees, I want you to understand why actually you think that you wouldn't have liked him, but I wanna convince you over the next couple of, of minutes that actually, I think that you would really like this Pharisee. The Pharisees were a group of Jewish leaders popular with farmers and fishermen. Actually, everyone liked the Pharisees. And they dated back to a time about 200 years ago when religion was in decline. The whole nation of Israel was backsliding. And in the mid middle of this mass backsliding, 
a group of people. The word Pharisee means separatists. They said, we're going to separate ourselves from this tendency to backslide, this tendency to move away from God in the people of God, and we're going to take God's word seriously in an ungodly world. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Their goal was to contextualize the laws of Moses and to bring them up to date and apply them. They were radical in their obedience to God's law as they understood it. And stories are told of how they would rather die under untold tortures than transgress God's laws. The Pharisee, he's the good person. How many of you would call yourselves a good person today? You'd be a lot like the, you would love the Pharisee. He's the good Christian. How many of you would call yourselves good Christians today? You would love this guy, the Pharisee. And in his prayer, he says, God, actually, if there is anything good in me, I thank you for it. I give you the glory for the good that's in me. I haven't stolen. I haven't been faithful to my wife. He said, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. The Pharisees, the Pharisees saw the law as being like a garden of flowers. And people who transgress God's law would be like people trampling on this garden of flowers. So what do you do? What do you do to stop people from trampling on the law, from transgressing the law? You put a fence around the garden of flowers. They went beyond the requirements of the law in order to ensure that no part of the law was violated. An example would be fasting. The law of Moses mandated that you fast one day a year on the annual day of atonement. Pharisees put a fence around the garden. They chose to fast two days before and two days after each of the three annual feasts that the Jewish nation celebrated each year. It's late on a Sunday evening, I won't test your maths, that means 12 days a year, the Pharisees fasted. But this man, I love this guy. He didn't just have a fence around the garden, this guy had a fence around the fence. And he said, I'm gonna fast, not the one day of a year that's required, not the 12 days a year that Pharisees do, I'm gonna fast twice a week. And history tells us it would've been every Monday, every Thursday, every week of the year, I'm gonna fast. What's that mathematically? 104 days a year, he was fasting. Pharisees were meticulous at tithing. They would tithe several different tithes that came to 20% of their income or more. If they weren't certain that food that they purchased had been tithed on, then they tithe it just in case. And many of you have met the Pharisee extraordinaire. His name was Saul. And as Paul, he wrote this in Philippians 3 verse 4. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, he says, I have reasons 
to believe in my self-righteousness. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. These Pharisees were pretty good guys. And here's the deal and the point of what Jesus was teaching. They'd be a lot more like you and me, like us good people, than we might realize. That's the Pharisee. Now let's move on to the tax collector. The tax collector, you think you like him. I want to persuade you tonight you would not have liked the tax collector. Why? Because these were not nice guys. These were not good people. In fact, if you listen to this parable and you are not shocked and disgusted that this tax collector was allowed in the temple in the first place, then you don't know tax collectors. Tax collectors were despicable for two main reasons. Number one, a tax collector was a Jew who collected taxes that funded Roman oppression. That meant every time that you saw one of these tax collectors, you were reminded of the conquest of Israel by the Roman army. So they were sellouts, but not only that, they were cheats. Because they used their position to take a healthy cut of the taxes for themselves in the process. This guy was a tax collector, he was not a good person. Beyond that, he prays this prayer. And by the standards of that day, it was not a very good prayer. He says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he's expressing repentance, but making no effort towards restitution. Zacchaeus, another tax collector, when he got radically saved, he said, Lord, look, I now give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That's what good repentance looks like. This guy just comes and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This was not a good prayer. <laughs> you would not have liked this guy. And then Jesus drops the bombshell. He says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. This blows my mind. There's one guy who strives to keep God's commands with all, with all, all that he can. The word says fast and he fasts. The word says give and he gives. The word says be faithful and he's faithful. And he's not justified. But there's a man who's a traitor and a cheat and greedy and hardly repentant as far as we can tell. And he goes home justified. Friends, do you get the quandary? Do you get the problem? If the Pharisee is not saved, 
How then can anyone be saved? Which brings us to the third thing. That's the most important word in this passage, and I want to submit to you possibly the most important word that you could ever understand. And that's the word justified. To be justified means to be declared righteous or to treat as righteous. And do you want, do you want to know why? If I haven't been at Common Ground Rondebosch for two years, why this is the one thing I want to talk about. Martin Luther helps us out. He says of justification. This is the chief article from which all our other doctrines have flowed. He says elsewhere, justification alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. And so friends, when I come from Nairobi to preach the Bible in Cape Town, this is what I want to talk about. Because common ground, what happens here matters. But common ground, according to Martin Luther, cannot exist one hour without understanding and internalizing and living out this truth. Martin Luther again, when the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. Do you see what this means? Sometimes, sometimes in battle, in the olden days when they had horses and swords and things like that, you can imagine one army charging against another and then in the thick of battle, maybe the enemy, uh, 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 because of their strategies, they, they, they inflict a great, a, a, a great kind of a, a, a dispersal of your forces and you're all scattered. And what would happen is in the middle of the army, maybe someone would have a, a trumpet or a horn, someone else would have a flag and they'd sound the horn and they'd lift up a standard and the, the soldiers would gather around that standard. That's what justification is. In the thick of battle, when everything around you is going wrong, justification is the standard that we can run back to. If you visited Europe and seen the castles there, often there'd be outer walls, but when even those were breached, they had what was called a keep. There was a place where, when all else failed, you could run inside the keep as the last line of defense. And friends, justification is that last line of defense because when our understanding of this falls, according to Luther, then everything has fallen. John Calvin said justification is the main hinge on which religion turns. One of the great verses on justification is 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. It says, God made him this is good news, folks. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is good news. And it's important in our thinking, in our understanding, that we understand that justification, what God, God does for us, 
must be distinguished from sanctification, which is a precious work that God does in us. I want to work through that briefly and just track with me because when this falls, everything falls. Justification. Justification is spelt, well, sanctification. Sanctification is spelt D-O because it has a lot to do with what you do. God has a part in sanctification. We have a part in sanctification. It has a lot to do with what we do. Justification, on the other hand, is spelt D-O-N-E because it rests on what Jesus Christ has already done on the cross and through the empty tomb for you and I. Some more differences. Justification is being declared righteous. It's a God-given righteousness. It's not in us, it is over us. Sanctification is being made righteous. God works righteousness in us. Justification is our position before God. I'm justified. I am a son. I am seated in heavenly places. Those refer to my position before God. Sanctification refers to our practice before God. When we rely on this, it's then our performance that establishes our work. Justification is objective. It's Christ's work for us. Martin Luther called this an alien righteousness and that it's a righteousness that comes from outside of us. It's objective. Justification, someone said, is not only about pardon, but it's about perfection. How many of you have ever been in debt, owed someone some money? Okay. Imagine that you are overdrawn at the bank. Big amount. What's a big amount? 10,000 rand? 10,000 rand in debt. You're overdrawn, and then you go to the ATM, and maybe you've never done this, but I have. You go to ATM thinking it's empty, but hoping against hope that there's something still in there somehow. <laughs> and you arrive at the ATM, you put the card in to withdraw 200 rand. You're pretty sure you're 10,000 rand overdrawn. And holy smoke, 200 rand comes out. And you get a mini statement, and it says there's no more 10,000 rand overdraft. It's been cleared. Is that good news? That is good news, but it's not a full picture of justification. Because justification doesn't just take our debt before God and cancel it, that's part of it. I want you to imagine that if, when you get the mini statement, you find it's not that there's no more 10,000 rand overdraft, there's now a 5,000 rand credit. Now that is very good news. And that gets closer to justification because justification is about pardon our sins have been forgiven, they've been washed away, they were counted against us, but they are no longer. But on top of that, the perfect righteousness of none other than Jesus Christ is credited into our account. That means 
when God the Father looks at your righteousness and he looks at the righteousness of his son Jesus, there is no difference because the righteousness of Jesus is our righteousness. This is good news. It means that when I get saved, I don't have to rely on my own righteousness. I don't even have to be as righteous as, as Ryan or even Kate. <laughs> All of those are inferior righteousnesses to the righteousness you are given that is declared over you the moment you believe in Christ and are justified, you are given the righteousness of none other than Jesus Christ himself. Justification is objective, it's Christ's work for us. Sanctification is subjective, it's Christ's work in us. Righteousness in us is always imperfect. Christ's righteousness covering us is perfect. And here's the deal, and here's where I think the Pharisee got it really wrong, is no matter how righteous or moral or religious you are, don't trust in that. Don't trust in what God has worked in you. Trust in Christ. Are you a Common Ground member? Are you in a life group and serving and giving and praying and that's all good, but that's not what you trust in. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a common ground member. Maybe you wouldn't even call yourself a Christian. But you do good things. You try and make a difference in society. You try to be honest in your workplace. All those are good things, but you don't trust in that. Because that cannot bridge the gap between God's perfection and our fallenness. Only one thing can bridge the gap. And that's what Jesus has done, D-O-N-E, for you. Justification is immediate and complete at conversion. You are never more justified than the moment you first believe. And sanctification is a process that's only complete in eternity. What does that mean? It means, Christian, that you can take heart in your battle against indwelling sin. You can take courage that your standing is not based on your performance, but it's based in Christ. And when you feel like a failure, where will you look? Don't look within. But look at the perfect work of Jesus Christ to justify us. The next thing we talk about is the Pharisee. Okay, so his justification. Why wasn't he justified? I think for, there are three pointers that we find in the text. The first is that he compared himself to someone other than Jesus. <laughs> Self-righteousness does that. It compares us to the person next to us and often in areas where we know that we will be superior to them. This is typified by a rabbi called Rabbi Simeon ben Jochai. He famously said this, if there are only two righteous men in the world, I and my son are these two. <laughs> if there is only one, I am he. 
that is self-righteousness. But friends, our good works are not good enough. The standard God sets for us is to be as pure as Jesus himself. What the Pharisee said about himself was true. His trouble was not that he was not far enough along the road of right. He was, his trouble wasn't that he was not far enough along the road. His trouble was that he was on the wrong road altogether. To quote Charles Spurgeon, he said, one might better try to sail the Atlantic in a paper boat than try to get to heaven on good works. So the first point is he compared himself, not to Jesus, but to the tax collector. The second pointer, that he was off course, is that whatever he had experienced and understood caused contempt, not compassion. One commentary says this, we are not warmed by the love of God when we are in the presence of this so-called upright and, godly, and apparently godly man. Then it says this, and this is the stinger. If grace does not lead to grace, it turns out not to have been grace at all. Common ground, I know you've heard many of these things before. Ooh, be exciting. <laughs> I know that you've heard many of these things before. But here's the deal. When you go to Langa, when you go to Antananarivo, when you come to Nairobi, when the city of Cape Town, amongst whom you're making Jesus famous, come amongst you, the question is, what do they experience? Someone said this. If you talk mumps, but what you have is measles, do you know what people catch from you? Measles, not mumps. If we talk grace, but what we have in our hearts is something else, do you know what people will catch? Not the words of grace, but what's in our hearts. It's in how we look at them when they walk through the door. It's in whether we move away from them or towards them when they're standing alone in the corner. It's in our facial expressions when they tell, when they tell us what they've been up to that week. And that's why we're coming back to this again and again. So that we can be a people who as we walk through the city of Cape Town, when people come around us, what they experience and what they catch is the grace of Jesus Christ who has done everything that is necessary for our justification. The third thing that makes it clear that this man was on the wrong track is that actually he had offended God. Paul says this in Philippians. He says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. I consider everything a loss. I consider them rubbish, he says a bit later, that I may gain Christ and be found in him Listen to this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Lastly, spoken about the Pharisee, we've introduced him, and I hope that you realize why I think you'd have liked him. We've spoken about the tax collector and why I think you wouldn't have liked him. We've spoken about the key word in this passage, which is justification. We've looked a little bit more at the Pharisee and understood better, perhaps, why he wasn't justified when he went home. Now we're going to look at the tax collector and try and understand how he found mercy. The scripture says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. For all those of you right now in your hearts standing at a distance from God. For those of you who perhaps even where you sit in an auditorium like this, it reflects that you feel distant from God. For people who struggle to even walk through the church doors and are standing at a distance from God, know that God's heart is for you, just like it was for this tax collector. He knew what he had done, and that's why he stood at a distance. The Bible says that he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast. This, the commentators tell us, would be today's equivalent of an ugly cry. (laughs) It was a gesture of remorse more appropriate for a woman than for a man. He was deeply, emotionally affected by his state. And friends, that's a sign that he was on the right track, that God was working in him. And the last thing is he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a great prayer to pray. It was not impressive by that day's standards, but it was heard in heaven, the Bible tells us. He went home justified. In the Greek, that verse could be translated, God have mercy on me, the sinner. Meaning, if there's only one sinner in the world, I am he. If you come through the doors of this auditorium thinking, I've got a lot of brokenness, I've done a lot of things I shouldn't have done. If you will pray this prayer, God have mercy on me, the sinner. My friends, God will move towards you in love and mercy faster than you could ever dream. And there's a beauty in this prayer. Because this is not just a plea for mercy, God have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a plea for mercy on the basis of what God has already done. The word translated, be merciful to me, is the verb form 
for the word mercy seat. And the mercy seat went back in terms of the history of Israel. Israel had the Ark of the Covenant, which is a one meter, roughly gold box, wood covered with gold. And inside that box were the tablets of the Ten Commandments, which had been broken. And above them was what was called the mercy seat, which was this kind of uh, golden uh, metalwork that uh, looked like two, two cherubim wings meeting each other in the center. And that's where the presence of God resided. And it was a picture of how he would look down at the laws that all of us have broken. But in the beauty for the people of Israel, was that once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would walk in and sprinkle blood, the blood of a sacrifice, on that mercy seat. And because of that, the sins of a nation could be atoned. And so his prayer, if you like, is God, even though I've broken your commandments in so many ways, could it be that through a blood sacrifice, even a sinner like me can find mercy? And the answer of Jesus is yes. Because I'm going to die on a cross. And the good news is that my blood is more powerful than the blood of goats or rams or bulls or sheep. And when heaven looks down on the sacrifice of the Son of God, his broken body and his shed blood, just like he used to look down on the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, then he no longer sees just the laws that we have broken. But he has made a way for sinners like you and I to come to him and to cry out for mercy and to go home justified. So we stand together. So much going on. I think this is the kind of thing it does me good standing up here and having these truths wash through me as I share them. It does me good. I think it does the heart of a Christ follower good to come back to these things often. But wherever we are on our spiritual journey, I wonder whether we can get ready to worship God. Let's get ready to come to Jesus. He is so ready to give out mercy tonight to all who call on him. That's why he died on a cross. That's why he sacrificed himself. Just with eyes closed in here tonight, I would not be serving you well I didn't ask you, where are you on your spiritual journey? It may be that you came in here tonight thinking I'm a good person 
and you've realized tonight that no matter how good you are, you can't be good enough for a perfectly righteous God. Or it may be that you walk through those doors thinking, actually, I am the sinner. If there's only one sinner in this room, then it's me. Or maybe you're somewhere in between those two pictures. But you haven't put your faith in Jesus plus nothing to rescue you and to make you righteous. You haven't put your faith in Jesus to give you mercy so that you can be washed clean, so that you can be born again and have a new start with the God who loves you, with the God who's the God of second chances. And if that's you, the best thing that you can do is pray this tax collector's prayer tonight. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I'm going to lead you in that prayer right now. And if you'll repeat it in your heart after me, the Bible says that tonight, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you can find mercy at the mercy seat of a loving God. I'm going to pray this prayer out loud. I wonder whether everyone in this hall could pray it out loud with me, but if you've never put your faith in Christ before, if you've never reached out to Jesus and said, Lord, have mercy on me, I want you to mean it in your heart. Would you pray this after me? Jesus Christ, I know that you are a righteous God. And I admit that I'm a sinner tonight. I'm not good enough for you, but I thank you for your rescue operation. Thank you for dying on a cross so that I could have mercy tonight. I ask you for mercy, and I receive it right now. Not because of anything good I have done, but because of what you have done. If you pray that prayer, Jesus' eyes are on you tonight. He's moving towards you so fast and he's working in your heart right now. And we're all gonna worship together led by this magnificent band But if you pray that prayer tonight for the first time, you're putting your faith in Jesus. I and some of the Common Ground team would love to pray with you right where you're standing. If you pray that for the first time tonight, would you just slip your hand up so we can pray with you, stand with you and encourage you. There's one brother on the side over there. I wonder whether we could get someone over there. Is there anyone else tonight? You can see one hand up. Are there any other hands? Don't be shy, be bold. There's a lady in one of the rows. It's it's the best decision you could ever, ever make. Is there anyone else here tonight? See two hands up. Is there anyone else? 
Jesus has never turned a sinner away. Never. And tonight he's moving towards you. Is there anyone else? There's a man at the back, right at the back. I wonder whether one, awesome, if you could go help him in the, oh, that's fantastic. Is there anyone else? God's at work. God's drawing you to himself. You're not here tonight by accident. God's got your number. And he's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. There's not a person in this room who earned the righteousness of Jesus. We all receive it as a gift, and that gift is for you tonight. And if you reached out and asked for it, he freely gives. Is there anyone else who reached out to Jesus tonight? Thank you, God. Thank you, God. We pray for these brothers and sisters who've called out for mercy. God, thank you that they can go home tonight justified. I pray that by your spirit right now, you would seal this truth in their hearts. And God, would you seal it in the hearts of those of us who asked for your mercy months and years ago. God, may we be a rejoicing community that understands the depth of what you've done and lives in the good of it and experiences it daily so that through us, this great city of Cape Town and this great continent of Africa can experience your mercy. In your name we pray. Amen.